Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Here we are for another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast, Sherry. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Good. Do we have a listener question? We do. You want to hear it? Yeah. It's kind of a long one. Okay. And I think our answer to the listener question is just going to kind of morph into our the rest of the episode. The main portion of the episode is about parenting. And we haven't talked about that in quite a while. But what alcoholism and recovery, what kind of parents that has made us. But before we kind of drift into that, let's address this very thoughtful listener question. I really like it. And hey, listeners, if you would like to ask us a listener question, again, not as professional advice from a therapist or a psychologist, because that is not what we are. But if you want to hear our opinion based on our experience, send your listener question to Matt at SoberAndUnashamed.com and we'll put it in the queue and hopefully we'll get a chance to answer it on one of our episodes. So listener question for today. What have you learned about yourselves after the chaos of addiction is gone? What negative behaviors now stand out as strengths as part of who you are? And are they the same things you valued in yourselves before addiction? What about how you see yourselves in the day-to-day has changed? That's a lot, huh? That's a lot. Meaty. Yeah. A lot of meat on that bone. Do you want to take the first bite, Sherry, or do you want me, Jesus. Do you want me to? God, you know, you should write a terrible dad joke and pun book. Yeah. You are really good at those. Um, the only thing that pops out in my mind when you were reading through those questions about... What I always kind of thought was a little bit of a, oh, well, this kind of made me who I am and I have experience and I can pass that on is sometimes I really have regrets about having experimented with drinking and drugs in high school and college. I mean, this isn't something like you and I have talked to our kids like this isn't something you can do anymore where I grew up and the people I was getting them from were people that I knew. And the people that I partied with, like, were familiar. And this isn't something you can do anymore. So I feel really kind of embarrassed talking to the kids about that. Because I want them to be like, okay, so mom isn't so square. She wasn't just, you know, a book nerd. She really has experience. But then I realize with fentanyl use and things like that, and things I'm not familiar with, it makes me just feel like a fucking loser. Like, I should have been more of a studious student and been more cautious and, and more aware, especially coming from, I mean, this was this was the thought was, well, wasn't your dad an alcoholic? Didn't you have alcoholism in your family? But then, you know, you still, didn't your dad, like, have cancer? Yeah, my dad had cancer. I, I don't know if it was the alcohol or the smoking that killed him, but, but something you did killed both. him. And I did both. I did those things and... Other stuff. Other drugs. Other drugs. That you know, you do make a good point. I don't, I probably should know this, but I don't. I don't understand the economics of the whole, you know, the, there's fear that there's fentanyl in stuff. Because the fear when we were kids, now I didn't do a lot of drugs, but that was mostly because 
I just loved alcohol so much. It wasn't like I was a prude. I just, I smoked weed a few times and I didn't get anything from it. Or and I had got a, paranoid. And I had a terrible experience with paranoia on mushroom, magic mushrooms. I hid in the bushes outside of McDonald's drive through for like three hours. My friends couldn't find me. That wasn't good. But, uh, so it's not prudish, but the, the, the fear when we were adolescents and teenagers and, and early 20s was that it would get cut thin, right? Like, like there would be, like your, your pot wouldn't be strong enough. Like you'd get cheated when you, when you bought it. This, my friends that are listening, is the inexperienced voice. <laughs> well, the fear wasn't that, that you were going to die from shorted. fentanyl. Yes, Nobody was worried that, gonna, sh- that it was going to be shorted. too strong. Or like people would mix oregano in there or something because it looked like it could be... Yeah, you were you would be like yeah. Dying. That's my point. Yeah. So now so our, yes, there our were kids, fears of cut. Our kids, we have to say, yeah, you know, don't think you're going to try a party drug just once. You might die because there might be fentanyl in there. Right. And I don't. Again, I don't understand like how for if you're a drug dealer, how making drugs stronger is economically better. I guess fentanyl's cheap and powerful. I guess I don't know. I don't know. I don't really All care. I remember is just like. 10, 9, 10, 8 years ago when we owned a bakery, one of the employees that worked there said to me, oh, Sherry, you would completely die if you smoked, if you smoked any of the marijuana from any of the pot shops because the THC level is so strong now. And that's, you know, so I feel like I'm just like, oh, yeah, well, mom grew up in Hillbilly, Indiana, and it was just ragweed. And then that's all I know. So, know? okay, so... That's... I'm not sure we're addressing the listener question. It's a meaty one. A lot of meat on this phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, what I what I wrote when I first read this question was, what, you know, mm. what have you learned? What has changed um, was the end? What about how you see yourselves in the day-to-day and what has changed? Everything has changed. Yeah. Almost everything has changed as a result of our addiction and our recovery. I mean... I know I see my I see things with a lot more clarity, a lot less anger. Um, I used to impose my views on other people, both pre-addiction and during addiction. Like when we talk about politics, we've talked lots of times on the podcast about how I'm really organized and I would try to make you be really organized. How you and I have different parenting styles and rather than respecting that, like I do now and really admiring the differences... I would try to impose my way on you. Like, I mean, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but I used to criticize you and say, why do you give the kids so many choices? I mean, what a blessing that is as a child to have a mother who gives them choices. And I thought of that as bad for a while. So, I mean, I've got a a much more clarity to see that my way is not the best way. There's some things about my way that I just can't help, like when we talk about that organization thing. I see the degree to which I need to be organized before I can be productive as a limiting factor now, not as an asset. I know there are lots of people that are more feel more free and can just do the thing they want to do or create or have the conversation or work on the spreadsheet or do whatever it is without first needing to get like super organized and they're all their ducks in a row. And I think it cuts down on my productivity because of the way I do that. It's stressful. It squashes creativity. Um, you know, it's me and it's fine, but it's far from aspirational. 
I'm a lot, Sherry. Did you know I'm a lot? Yes. Um, our daughter informed us of that several years ago. And I you agree. And I, and I said agree. nothing at the time. Yeah. But I think one of the things that that has changed me because of the addiction, and maybe if you had just plugged along as a moderate to weekend binge every now and then drinker, um, and there hadn't been as much chaos in the life under our roof, maybe I would kind of have some of the viewpoints of some of my friends. You know, we've planned some graduate high school graduation parties and there was talk about alcohol. And then some of the mindset of some of the people that I was planning with was like, oh, well, kids are going to drink regardless. And yes, I know that they're going to do it, but I didn't want it under my watch. Yeah. There's and a I difference between knowing about, about it and condoning it. Yes. I didn't, and I didn't want to have it in my view. And I was pretty... Not to mention, technically, we could get arrested, arrested that's, for that. Well, that's what I kept thinking of all the legal things. And I, I know that, you know, there's family members of mine that have let their teenage kids drink under their roof as long as the guarantee was they weren't going to leave. But, you know, you just hear horror stories. Um, so I think that I, I'm kind of thinking maybe I would have been a little bit more passive about that had I had more run-ins with our kids maybe experimenting with alcohol while they were under our roof. I mean, yes, there's going to be... Or if if I hadn't gone across the line into addiction, let's say you and I just drank together on the weekends, for instance, mm-hmm. and maybe I didn't get overboard when we drank together on the weekends, then I see what you're saying. There's a high likelihood that you and I both would have been, ah, kids will be kids. Yeah. You know, we're going to have some pops at this graduation party, let the kids have a couple pops. Or, you know, like we have, we've mentioned on the podcast that for years we've gone to the Indianapolis 500. Maybe as our kids had graduated high school, maybe we would have said, sure, they can have a beer that day yeah, we're, because we're, we're having to make beers. sure they're going to get a safe ride you know? home. They're not even trying to get themselves home. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I hope that I would still feel that way knowing how I felt like before I had kids. And I found that out about family members with their teenagers but I'm like, I don't know if it never became a problem and if I didn't have an issue with it. Yeah. And how would that have set up our kids in their future of not knowing the seriousness of what alcohol can bring because it's this benign substance that social media wants you to believe. And I feel like we really try to fight hard against that together as a team because of that, because of what we do and because of your addiction. And I think that Hopefully our kids take that seriously. Yeah. You know, part of the listener question was, are the same things uh, you valued in yourselves before the same things you value now post-addiction? Some are. You know, there are definitely there are so many things that changed, but like, like one thing that comes to mind is we have not had to deal with infidelity in our marriage. And I'm really, really thankful for that. Because certainly if... If you lean that way or if you're tempted in that way and then you consume a bunch of alcohol, the likelihood of following through on it is a lot higher, right? I mean, I think a lot of the cheating, the infidelity that takes place, takes place under the influence. So I'm just really glad that, you know, you and I didn't experience that growing up. So much of what the attributes that we display as adults are carried over from the things we witness or experience as children. And I'm really glad that you and I didn't experience that as kids. 
And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I feel silly asking you this in front of our podcast audience, but are you ever tempted to cheat on me? No. Okay. I uh, mean, that, that, I don't know. Like I have ever, I've thought like, oh, well, if I would have divorced Matt, would I have gotten remarried? No, I wouldn't want to open up that can of worms. I wouldn't want to have anybody else's shit to deal with. Because I was barely struggling to dealing with mine, and then it led to a divorce. So, no, I have, but I have no, there's just no desire. Because I didn't grow up around it, probably. So when the listener asks, are there things you valued before that you still value now, aren't you, aren't you glad that's on that list? Yes. That, and I mean, that would, be, that would be crushing if we had, and I know there are a lot of listeners that have had to deal with that. I, honestly... If I mean, if we're just being honest, and that's what we do on this podcast, I don't, I don't know how you survive it. Yeah, and I think I'm a very emotional person. I suppose. <clears throat> I think uh, that. Oh, go ahead. No, I just I'm just struggling. I don't know how I would survive. Um, that. I think that one of the things that this addiction has opened our eyes to is that it doesn't just have to be a substance. It can be a feeling. It can be a lot of things that you can become addicted to, whether it's shopping or exercise or gambling or sex or food and sugar, you know, all these things. So I feel like I kind of understood that you could overdo things, but then I never considered that there could be things that are good for you that you can overdo. I mean, you know, I had two friends that struggled with anorexia and bulimia, so I was slightly aware um, of that, but I never realized like there could be things that really are kind of good for you that take place and take precedence over your families and that I, we've kind of would consider that that is harmful and that you can become addicted to other things. Does that make sense? So like, I think so. I mean, I definitely have one of the things that I've taken away from this addiction and recovery process is I recognize stress responses in other people, and I'm not judgmental about that. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, like so when the addiction gets for for me, it would be a transference, right? If I yes. would transfer from alcohol to something else, but there's other people that never had alcohol addiction, but they have other addictions or just other trouble spots, whether that's like stress eating, you know, mm-hmm. or or, or stress sexual not neediness, not even necessarily sex addiction, but. Um, you know, when you see that in other people, that's something that I would have been judgmental about that I'm not anymore. So I feel like that's made me a little bit more aware to like kind of watch our kids and their patterns and their habits. Yeah. And, and we have had some issues where we wonder if there's been some development of some of those things like technology addiction, especially with this kid, this generation of kids. So I think it made me more aware of other addictions that are out there. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. So that was, thank you, listener, for that question. Very thoughtful question. I'm not sure that we addressed all the parts, but I do feel like we did our best. There was a lot, a lot of meat on it. God. <laughs> There's a lot and to that. at least you had some, like, idea of what the question was. I know. I, just I was down. prepared and I still I just popped down me. in the chair and here I am like, oh, boom. Well, our listeners like you off the cuff. That's when you're the best. Uh, so the so let's transition to the main topic for the podcast today, which is parenting. Um, the, the, the thing that I think you and I focus most on 
when it comes to how our recovery impacts our kids and their lives as they transition into adulthood is just breaking some of the generational patterns that have existed. And I'm not just talking about drinking. I mean, certainly on my side of the family, drinking has always been a staple. It's been, you know, it hasn't been five o'clock. It's been noon is when it's appropriate to drink. It's been celebration, morning, you know, the fact that it's a weekend, the fact that it's a weeknight and you're done with work, like, like drinking is just ever present. And so certainly that's a part of it, but there's other generational things, patterns that I think you and I both try are trying to break for our kids so that they don't have some of the underlying causes that lead to addiction. Like one that we've talked about a lot, teasing. I think it's very, very, very common with males. It's very, very common on my side of the family that the the way males show affection for each other is to tease each other. I was teased a lot as a kid. You know, my I just to be blunt, I feel like my sister was treated like a princess and I was teased. And I think my parents loved us both the same, but that's how they expressed it. And being teased hurts over time. It builds up and it does not feel good. And as a girl, I'll say I would be kind of picked on and teased by older cousins or uncles or... And I wouldn't say so much like the women in my family. I think you're right. It is kind of a male-dominated trait because that lack of being emotional as a male is... And especially because... I can now say that Matt will soon be 50, very, very soon be 50. So the 50 and older crowd, or maybe the 40 and older crowd grew up with that generational thing. But I remember I would try to tell them I didn't like to be teased, but my mom got it and she understood. She knew I didn't like to be teased. And I, you know. Well, nobody likes to, although a lot of us pretend it's okay. Like that's how it's a defense mechanism to get through. Yeah, it would. And we tease people back. Tease them faster so they can't tease you. Yeah, and it would just, but it would just be one, and you know, it would just be one comment, and I'd be like crying and bawling and telling my mom I didn't want to be teased. And then as a girl, it was more okay to be like, oh, well, she's just a girl. She's just, you know. So I didn't get ridiculed a lot further than that. The another uh, tendency or generational pattern that I feel like we work hard to break is judgment. You know, and I'll own this one too. I was the the biggest teaser. I got teased a lot, and then I transfer that to our kids, and I'm working really hard to reverse that. Uh, but also judgment, um, passing judgment on others. You know, that, that question, you did what? With like squinted eyes, that scowly face. That's something that I inherited and when I would say that to the kids, it would strike fear in their hearts, you know, being judged. Um, and it doesn't make it be something just goofy that they did, or it could be a mistake they made. I mean, everyone makes mistakes. Kids are certainly humans, right? And so rather than be understanding, I would be judgmental and and give that, that just that, you know, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about that scowly face look, right? Yes. Yes. Do I still do it a lot? Um, not so much because you're working on not being judgmental. It's a terrible look. It is a terrible look. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, and I didn't even tell you this, but I talked to our oldest son last night who is in college. His, it's his freshman year, second semester. 
and I asked him how the new classes are going because he's just a few weeks into the second semester. And he said, terrible. And that shocked me. I didn't expect that. And I said, what do you mean? And he said he overdid it. He said he's got too big of a workload. He's actually already in his freshman year. He's transitioning from one major to another. And he's still kind of taking some of the really hard classes from the original major. But he also jumped in with both feet. And he's taking the hardest class from the new major. And he said, it's too much. And I'm going to talk to my counselor. And I have to tell you, all of my instincts were to say, you know, you just got to suck it up and get through it. And he said, I'm just miserable all the time. It's too much work. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sad at the end of the day because I've worked so much and my roommate doesn't, doesn't do 10% of the work I have to do. And every, every instinctual piece of me wanted to say, it's only one semester, suck it up and get through it. Just bear down and do it. But I didn't. Are you proud of me? He's, he, he mentioned that he needs to talk to his counselor, and that's what I said. I said, I, I think you're on the right path. I think you should talk to your counselor and find a way out. And he said, but I already missed dropping an ad. And I said, well, you know, that's okay. You, talk to your counselor. Your counselor will have better advice than I have. But if you need to, you know, take an incomplete, or I said, I don't know how it works anymore. Yeah. I don't know how college yeah, works anymore. So- but if it's you so need new. to take an incomplete on one of the really hard classes and do it again next semester or two semesters from now, talk to your counselor, get some professional advice. I said, talk to your sister. She's a senior, or pardon me, a junior in college, so she's probably been through this. Talk to her. And instead of, like I said, what I wanted to say was just suck it up and have a bad semester. Um, but again, I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be unsafe for my kids to turn to so you know part of me thinks I wonder if it's really that hard I wonder if it's really that hard or has he just never faced anything hard before but I don't think it's our job as parents to decide what's hard for them yeah to deny what they're saying and to I mean life is hard enough life's going to be hard whether I'm a hard ass or whether I'm uh, compassionate. Yeah. And so isn't compassionate the right way to go there, even though that's not anything I would have seen? What, you know, had I brought this situation up, I would have been told, well, you, you registered for those classes. We're expecting good grades. Make it happen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Uh, what are your thoughts on the topic of breaking the generational pattern of judgment? You're pretty good at not judging and you always have been. Um, I feel like in in my family, there was judgment when you were not doing what they suggested. And then it was laid on with some guilt. So I wanted to break... I, I don't even know if it is really would be judgment, a struggle, um, but just that, well, if you're not going to do what I say, you know, you're telling me about this, so you're obviously asking for my opinion, which that isn't always the case, sharing, and then that dismissiveness about going my own path, and they kind of write you off and make it seem like it's your problem. You didn't do what I suggested, so you're the one that's, you know, brought this on yourself. 
if things didn't work out. And then the guilt that was behind it. Yeah. And the attitude of if you didn't, if you disagree with me or you didn't take my advice, then I'm done. Yeah. I think you're right. I think guilt's the right word. I mean, there is, we, we talk about all the time that as humans, we are going to be harder on ourselves than anyone else will ever be on us. And so the idea of adding guilt to someone else, it just doesn't seem useful to me. Whereas before, when I was drinking, before I was drinking, I never even would have considered that. I would have considered there's a right way and a wrong way. And I don't care how it makes you feel. I'm going to encourage the right way. And that, you know, that leads into this next thing. I've already talked about my obsessiveness about organization. But it's, you know, I think it's really intimidating to our kids. Um, when I had the low self-esteem of addiction, I couldn't see how intimidating it could be. But I think it made our kids afraid to make a mistake. Because I was so ungracious if someone missed a deadline or like I remember our daughter when she was a senior in high school or even I guess it started when she was a junior in high school. She was applying to one of the military academies and there's so many deadlines with that. Yeah. You got to get your senator or representative's endorsement, which means you got to meet with them, which means you got to write an essay for them. You got to do the application. You got I mean, there's just like a thousand check marks. And I remember she missed something. And it wasn't even a big deal. It was like a physical or something. No, it was oh. it was like an like an early opportunity. I think it was you could go to the academy for a week in the summer between your junior and senior year just to see what it was like. And she missed the so totally optional, not part of whether not you get accepted or denied. Yeah. But she missed that deadline, and I got really upset. But I'm just I, my obsessiveness about organization is really intimidating, and it would make my kids afraid of me and. It, afraid to make a mistake and I look back on that now and it breaks my heart that I was that way because I feel like the sometimes the greatest lessons you learn are from the mistakes that you have had to go through in a lot of ways yeah um so yeah that's pretty fucking you know another great example of that is you know Joey is he is a becoming a great cook our third child he is following in his mother's footsteps. He's learning so much from you. And while you were gone in Indiana, which I think we mentioned on the podcast, uh, he you were gone for a couple of weeks and he made a couple of meals during that couple of weeks. And I'm pretty sure that both times he cooked, he left the oven on. And so he is following in my footsteps. So he is following in your footsteps. And I just couldn't not correct him. I couldn't just turn the oven off. I mean, I tried really hard to... To soft pedal it and say... You, you do that with me, so... The one time I said, Joey, are you done with the oven? You know, it's empty. It's been empty for half an hour. Yeah. No, I said it really nice. I didn't say it passive okay. aggressively. I, hey, Joey, are you are you done with the oven? Were you making dessert or something? Are you done? Oh, yeah. Did I leave that on? I just couldn't let him... I couldn't not let him know that I knew that he left it on. Because I feel like that's teaching a lesson. And I understand that that's a limitation that I have. I can't just let that go because I have these visions of our house burning down. Now, the likelihood, I think you could leave your oven on for like literally 10 years and it wouldn't burn down your house. But I worry every time it's on wow. for 15 extra minutes. Yeah. Because I'm a psycho. But, um, but yeah, so 
I try not to be super judgy, but I just can't get away from it altogether. And that's something I'm ashamed of. Yeah. The, the guilt is something that I'm working really hard on. Like now that we have kids that are in college, and I remember when you and I were in college, and even though my family was close, I wasn't around them all the time. You know, I didn't go and visit every Sunday or every other Sunday. I actually saw my mom quite a bit during her work day because I would use her office because she worked at the university we went to, use her office to go and do typing and writing papers and as a place to eat lunch or it was just a halfway point between my two classes for one semester um, a few days a week. So I saw her, but then I would get the, you need to call your grandmother, you need to go see your grandfather. Those sort of things, and that, I feel like, has been my biggest hurdle to overcome with guilt because I heard it all of my life. And a lot, as soon as I became somewhat mobile and responsible for myself, like having my own car, could make my own choices in high school, like I got a lot of that. And so this past winter break for both of our kids, our oldest was home and she was working a lot and she wasn't out running around. Oh, when you say for both of our kids, you mean the older two, the, the older two that are in college. Okay. So yeah. And then the other one, the one that's in his freshman year, I'm now that you told me the story about this really hard semester so far. I am kind of glad that he like did a lot of skiing and was away a lot with friends, even though I was like missing him and wanted to be around him. But when he was home, he wasn't even really engaged and I it, I, it took me a lot to not say that. And I know that sometimes it would creep out because I missed him. In his defense, on the actual holidays themselves, like but Christmas Eve and Christmas, yes. and then when my parents visited, he was here and engaged. Yeah, and like but, he but was... But college kids get like three or four weeks off. So there was a lot of yeah, that. Yeah, they had like four weeks. There was a lot of that where he was either not here or he was yeah, not and then, engaged. But then when I would say, okay, you know, because... The holidays were kind of messed up with the weather, so he was there a few days be- even before the holidays and the arrival of, of the parents to, like, help clean up. And when I would say, can you do this? And, you know, I, would, I was taking advantage of the free labor as yeah. well. But it was really hard because I just missed him and I wanted to be him to be in the house. And that was really my big struggle because I don't want to place my missing them and loneliness and guilt on not allowing them to have these experiences with their friends because that's a generation thing sh- yeah and it's such a short time of life where you don't have those sort of responsibilities yeah and you have that freedom and you know a lot of times i'm like i wanted to go on the car trip to utah to go listen to uh oh not Mannheim's team yeah, 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 the christmas that. one um yeah that i love so much and yes. i can't think of yeah the rock opera Christmas thing. Some listener, email us. Yes. Your, your Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Your, your question could be, how can you call that your favorite thing when you don't know the name of it? Yeah. But I, they, wanted oh, to go, I wanted to go with them. And you're like, why are you driving eight hours to go see this Christmas but wait a rock minute. thing? I, I said that to you, but I did yes. not say that to him okay, because I yes. was being careful to not be judgmental. Yes, and then... And then, but I wanted, I was like, but I want to go with them. They have a fourth ticket. Do you think they're, they would have liked their mother, cra- his mother he crashing? He probably wouldn't have minded. He he really enjoys you. All of our kids do. I bet he wouldn't have minded. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what his friends would have thought, but. Yeah. 
I think one of them would have been tolerable about it. But probably the hotel room overnight that would have been, been, been weird. slightly awkward. You would have needed your own hotel room. My own hotel room. Yeah. Maybe Nick would have taken the other bed so then there could have been two. Just, you know. But that was but, that was funny because I was like, I was trying mightily not to feel that guilt. And also I want to, part of that guilt for me is I want to recreate and redeem some of those holidays that have had addiction where there hasn't been fun and carefree and joy. Yeah. I think one of the things that, you know, I've done a poor job in setting this topic up of explaining, you know, because if you're listening, you might be thinking, why are they talking about breaking generational patterns? What does this have to do with a podcast about alcoholism, prevention and recovery? Here's what it has to do with it. It's these generational patterns that are not the best that are that turn into the underlying causes of addiction. I can't tell you how many people, you know, we work specifically with high-functioning alcoholics and people who have lived with and known high-functioning alcoholics. I can't tell you how many people we know where being pushed too hard academically, athletically, uh, being teased. These are these end up being the underlying causes of addiction, and so you might be thinking to yourself, you know, what 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 are these sniveling people talking about? Um, you know, you didn't get beaten as a child, you didn't get abandoned. Yeah, those are really severe cases of generational trauma and very severe cases of underlying, you know, causes of addiction. But the subtle causes are there too. And as long as we deny how impactful they are, then they win. They continue to lead to self-medication through things like becoming addicted to alcohol. So it's important for us to understand that this topic today, how do we change these generational patterns to more mental health uh, positive generational patterns? And why the hell does that matter? It matters a ton. And if you want the next generation to avoid addiction. And also, like, with my feeling about guilt was that because I was the nicer, calmer child between my sister and I, and my mom divorced my father when I was two and my sister was eight, and there was a bond, I think, between my sister and my father, something that he and I didn't have, I was responsible for her happiness in a lot of ways. Mm. And I don't ever want anyone to feel that they're responsible for someone's happiness. Yeah. And that's why I want to break that level of that, that part of the guilt, guilting me into staying with her, guilting me into hanging out with her, guilting me into sitting with her when she was feeling sad. Yeah. That's hard. The last topic that I want to cover that falls into this category of generational patterns, you know, I, I really felt this need to um, impose all of my knowledge on our kids to make sure they, you know, went out into the world armed with, uh, you know, I don't know, our viewpoints, our moral beliefs, our ethical beliefs, so that they could be upstanding citizens. And what I've learned through the recovery process and learning to be a better listener is the key to successful parenting is to create a relationship with your kids where they trust you enough to come and talk to you and ask for your opinion. The key is not to impose your opinion on them before they've had the chance to ask. And that's what I I think, especially with our oldest, that's what I did. 
I wanted to convince her of all the things I knew and convince her I was right because I thought I was helping the world, frankly, to send a, a human being out there with a good head on her shoulders. And it was a total mistake. Not only did she kind of re revolt against a lot of what I thought, which is the natural reaction as you're becoming an adult and some other adults telling you what you should think, the natural reaction is to reject that advice. Not only did she do that, but I just created a lot of tension between she and I. And so that's why I'm so proud of that call I received from my son. I mean, I did not get the sense yesterday that when he called that he was nervous at all to tell me, Dad, I messed up. I overloaded. I don't think he was anticipating that I was going to say, well, you did this to yourself, so suck it up. So thank God I didn't say that, even though that's what all of my training was telling me to say. So... I think just creating a relationship with our kids where they feel confident in coming to us with their problems, even into adulthood, right? Especially into adulthood is the key. And I think this is something that you're way, way, way better at than I am. And I'm just wondering, does that come naturally for you or is that something you have to work at the way I do? Mm. I don't know. Didn't think I had a question left for you, did you? I, I folded not. up my notebook and put it away, and I you were know. probably like, "Ah, we're on cruise control now." <laughs> it's just Matt talking. Did you even listen? Did you even listen to the question? Halfway. <laughs> um, I think because I I take into account, and I have such a good memory, so maybe that helps a lot. I have good memories and experiences from things I learned from my mother, my aunt, my grandmothers, those sort of things, and and take the experiences I had, the feelings I had. And with, like, learning and advice from others, I I think that it was a combination of everything that made that a little easier. And I feel like maybe I am a little more flexible than you, and I saw gray my whole life. There was no black and white. Yeah. Yeah. That organization being a detriment for me, because it's intimidating for our kids, that's not any kind of intimidation that they're going to get from you. They're not. As they're not going to have to suffer. How to organize everything. They're not going to have to suffer from your over organization. Yes. See, I got a little shot in there at the end. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't pay attention. That, that generational teasing that I did. Mm -hmm. That was awful of me. No, that's fine. It's just want to give you an opportunity to prove once again that you're the better parent and that our kids are lucky to have well, you. Well, they call. He called you instead of calling me, so that's a really big. I think. Um, Tip of the hat to how there has been a shift and a change in our family and the family's dynamic. And I want to keep that building. Yeah. And I am so glad that I didn't fuck it up despite my instincts to do so. Just, uh, just really lucky there. So I'm glad I have you as a role model to learn from when it comes to interacting with our kids. Thanks for being an awesome mama. Thank you for being a great dad. Well... We're doing our best, and I think that's all you can expect with parenting, especially when you're trying to change some generational patterns. So to our listeners, I hope this has been helpful. I hope you understand the connection to addiction and the connection to preventing addiction in the next generation. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. 
If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.